Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. I have with me Andy Green from Rolling Stone. Right, up, hi there, Andy? Brian. How you doing? I'm doing pretty well. Good. So today's going to be sort of a special flashback episode of Rolling Stone Music Now. Bob Dylan, as you may have heard, has a new album out. It's called Triplicate. It's another sort of standards album uh, where he sings, actually, in my opinion, quite well, um, some of the great American songbook standards. And some people might call this a, a weird direction that he's been in. I wouldn't call it that, but I understand why people would call that. So we thought we'd look back at another sort of divergent moment from Bob Dylan. Uh, really interesting album, 1985, Empire Burlesque. And to talk about this album, we have Arthur Baker, who worked extensively on it, the legendary Arthur Baker of Planet Rock and many other things. Uh, Arthur, are you there? Yeah, man, right here. Welcome. How you doing? Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Any any time I can talk about uh, Dylan, you know. <laughs> yeah, I you know it, it's <laughs> you've done a lot of stuff, and but this is a this is a, a, a certainly an interesting moment uh, in your career. So to give the audience some backstory, before you came in, Dylan had been recording and recording going back to '84. Uh, with various lineups. There were a lot of heartbreakers involved. <laughs> there were a lot of members of the heartbreakers. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of heartbreakers. Um, he had just sort of, I, I guess he had worked with Knopfler before. I, I, I actually have a great Knopfler story because he, he actually showed up at the studio one night and it was uh, pretty funny. But um, yeah, so he had a bunch of songs and, and I, got a, I got a call from my friend Joe McEwen, who you guys may know. He was working at Columbia at the time. Mm. And he said, oh, and I had done some Bruce Springsteen remixes and uh, he had said, oh, you want to meet Dylan? And I was like, you know, literally very nervous because I had been a big Dylan fan and <laughs> high school I had written my graduate paper on Dylan. I mean, it was just like of my age, everyone was a sort of fan of Dylan, I guess, growing up. But, you know, I went over to the hotel and the first thing was he he literally hadn't had room service there. <laughs> well, he had room service. He ate a lot in his room, but no, they never picked up any of the dishes. So no ma- no maid the- service, I guess, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no maid service. So there were probably four or five trays of food and, you know, lots of uh, leftovers <laughs> and stuff. And uh, he had a pile of cassettes and he just started playing me songs and, you know, literally probably fired about 15 or 20 and... He, he was like, well, what would you do? What would you do? <laughs> I said, well, I'd probably listen to him a few more times before I, you know. And, and you know, we, we, we hung out and uh, and I got the gig. So uh, it went from there. But, I mean, he had tons of songs and just really amazing. You know, they were great songs. And, and there was some uh, that needed work and some that didn't. But, um, you know, it was sort of a um, sort of patch up. Big. There were a lot of most of the things were actually recorded. We 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 went in and we cut a few from scratch. But basically, it was a 
for the most part, a remix thing. We cut a few, a few songs from scratch, but but for the most part, it was like well, trying to finish up a bunch of stuff. Was it your impression that it was his idea to talk to you, or that his label was like, "Let's get the cool guy, let's get Arthur Baker and make Dylan modern"? He kind of went along with uh, it. It definitely, it, it definitely wasn't his idea. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, there's no way it was his idea. So literally, because it was Joe, and um, and uh, yeah, I mean. Joe was very well thought of over there. He had been a he had been a journalist, which they didn't hold that against him. So, you know, <laughs> but he <laughs> but he was you know so basically, and I had done the Springsteen stuff, so maybe they, I'm sure they sold him on that. If they were going to sell him on anything, there was nothing else I would have had done that would have he would have related to at all. So right. I don't know. I guess when we met, you know, he was able. You know, we were able to get a little vibe going and. and uh, you know, and it worked out. I mean, uh, as I said, I was it wasn't like I, because you would assume because I was making like hip hop, well, rap records and stuff that I didn't know his work, but I was fully aware of everything he had done. So I, I was a fan. So basically, you know, I didn't really want to go, you know, I didn't want to make an electro track. I mean, you know, it was sort <laughs> of, I wanted to just finish stuff up and maybe polish it a bit and, and, and that was it, and, you know. Some of the things work, and some of the things going back didn't work. But uh, they, you know, they were they were great songs on that album. I think um, the fact that three of the songs were covered and uh, and did well, like but with other artists within a year or two of the album. I mean, emotionally yours, the OJ's redid, and it was like a top five R and B record. And when yeah. the knife comes falling from the sky, Jeff Healy covered, and then I I covered. Um, with Grace and You for the uh, Pride of Green Tomatoes um, soundtrack, I'll Remember You, which Bob loved the new version. He he called me up and said, I love what you did because I put sort of a new chorus at the end, like a, a sort of a, a new refrain on the end, and he loved that. So, I mean, there were great there were great songs on the album. I think it, it, it sure. really had a lot, a lot of really good songs. So what was the first step once you got the gig? Like, how did it go from there? Well, we went in, we were working at Power Station and, and the first stuff we did actually was, was working on a new track, which was When the Night Comes Falling from the Sky. Yeah. And he had the East Street Band, he had like... Uh, Van Zant and... He had Steve in there and he had uh, Max and he had the piano... Roy Bitten, yeah. Player. Yeah. So basically, I'm the, that's the first night I was in and he, and he cut it and... Then he was like concerned that it sounded too much like Springsteen. Well, I said, "Well, using his band wasn't that the idea?" And he and so he sort of canned that version. And then we went back in with Sly and Robbie. Well, let's uh, let's which, play. What, sorry, let's let's play the uh, the E Street Band version for a minute and, and hear that. Or the you right. know it's really the partial E Street Band, but we'll, we'll hear that. And now we've heard that. Let's hear. Let's hear the uh, the Sly and, and Robbie version. Yeah. Okay. That, that Arthur cool. did. Look out across the fields, see me so obviously, it it changed a great deal. In fact, the release version. Um, one of the things that strikes me is it, it seemed to me that he was 
partially recreating a version of one of his songs that he's always been fascinated with, which is all along the Watchtower, the Hendrix version. It has a very similar intro. Yeah. Was that referenced in the process? Uh, not, no, I mean, yeah, I felt that, but it wasn't like we went back and listened to any of his old tracks. <laughs> he, he did, you know, that, I mean, literally, he, he just goes for it in the studio. It, it just, uh, you know, maybe... Yeah, I probably referenced that in, 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 in finishing it. Obviously, you know, that was in my mind. But, um, yeah, you know, we, I mean, it was a pretty open uh, situation because he, he, Bob doesn't like to spend a lot of time in the studio, you know, so it's, it's sort of, <laughs> <laughs> he would he would come in at seven and leave at nine. And then and then I'd be there and we'd be like, okay, now what do we do? You so know? you're talking about so seven, it it's a 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. work day is yeah, what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's part awesome. Of that time, part of that time he'd order, he'd, he'd, get, he'd always have food, he gets the food from Sylvia's, you know, from the soul food place. Huh. Cause that's when he, he, I um, mean, he was going out with the, with the background singer. One of the background singers who he ended up marrying. Um, yeah. So, you know, it was sort of that vibe. We were, had a big feed and then everyone was really tired. So, you know, basically it was, uh, <laughs> it, was it was, it was interesting. And, and uh, yeah, you know, people would pop in. I mean, there's, you know, there are a lot a lot of people would pop in on those sessions and um, you know, I mean, there were a lot, I mean, Bob would, the thing is Bob wasn't really big on the technology side of it. So literally he would want to go in and sing with the background singers on the same mic for the vibe. Right. But then, then when we get a take and he'd want to change something, it would be like, well, you know, the background singers are on the same track. So, when you do your punch in, we're going to have to punch in the background singers also. So, <laughs> which is nearly you know, impo- sort of, that's almost impossible, right? Because they have to be in the exact well, same position. Yeah. No. We, we we worked it out somehow. We did, but <laughs> but you know, Bob. The other thing was Bob loved to rewrite lyrics because Bob was mostly concerned about his lyrics more than anything else. So that you know, he would do rewrites and and all that because you know he is Bob Dylan. People are going to be looking at those lyrics forever. So it it, it was a uh, it was a great, you know, it was a great process. I mean, there, there, there were definitely a lot of moments that I'll, a lot of moments I'll never forget. And, uh, and it, you know, it was a great experience. And, uh, you know, I mean, the, the idea that he's now doing a lot of these cover, you know, cover albums of, of the, uh, of classic American songs. It, it's funny because when we were, we were remixing the, the we, we mixed the album at, at, uh, at right track and, um, one day, we, you know, the music's pretty loud, and, and he's sort of sitting in front of the board and on a couch, and I'm hearing something. I'm like, what the fuck? Where's that? And, and we turn down, we turn the level, and it's him playing like a virgin. You know? <laughs> he's like, and he's like, you know, I'm, Bob, uh, what's up, man? Uh, he's like, ah, man, can't we do it? Can't we do a record like? Madonna, Prince, you know, know, but uh, hey, he he could do a cover version album of, you know, 80s classics. He probably, uh, maybe that will be the next. That could be next. I don't know. But you never know with Bob. To return to When the Night, one of the things that's striking, especially since that's, you know, a song that you did you know, actually with him, the drum sound on that, yeah. what was he, what, was he playing an artificial kit, uh, an electronic kit or what was going, like how did, how did that yeah, sound? Yeah, that, that was, uh, that was um, Sly Dunbar. He was actually using syndromes. And whose idea was that? That's what he played. And that's, <laughs> and, and you know, th- 
No, Sly and Robbie had played with Bob before. They yeah, on, on Infidels, yeah. Yeah, so they, you know, it wasn't li- literally, it was one of those things. He had, Sly had his drums set up at Power Station, and he's using Sin drums, and I'm like, wow, that's sort of weird because, <laughs> you know, this is such a great drum sound here. But that's what Bob, you know, Bob liked it, and, you know, that's what Sly had. It was one of those things, you know, I came in, and they were already there, and I had actually... Met, I had met them earlier. I already knew the guys, and Sly was really into technology. So, but the, the very funny thing is, he used to have he had these toms set up, which he didn't really use, and he would just have the newspaper on those. So he'd be reading the newspaper while he'd be doing takes, literally. <laughs> <laughs> like someone else would be like someone else would be reading a music chart, but you know, he was reading the newspaper, like Daily News or Post or something. So it was pretty pretty bizarre. Huh. And, you know, that was the sound, but literally that was that wasn't anything that I brought to I didn't go, Oh yeah, let's use syndromes. It was more like that's what he had and that's what we used. It was sort of that kind of thing where uh you know, and, and obviously uh, the other songs on the record didn't use those because they were cut with, uh, I think, the guy from, um, from uh, uh, you said... Um, the Heartbreakers and, yeah. And tent and stuff, and the, the, yeah, the, the, those guys played on it. So uh, Tom Petty's band. It's funny, this so, is... Yeah, a, yeah, it was a lot. But, sorry, go ahead. No, I mean, I, I think a lot of people naively listening to it any kind of like quote-unquote 80s sounds i think they would assume oh that must be arthur but i, I get that that really isn't the yeah. case for a lot of things right well yeah no, i was trying you know i mean we did the, you know we did the glockenspiel and stuff you know i was always into glockenspiel like a phil specter thing you know i mean listen going back you know i would change a few things on it but um you know i i really wanted him to uh you know, at one point I was like, we should just go back and strip it all down. And, you know, basically that the one, the one thing that we, you know, a lot of the songs have a stripped down feel, but obviously dark eyes, which, which, uh, which was the last track we did on the record. You probably read his book and basically he made a big thing out of that track, which I never knew while we were working on it. You know, we were about to finish the record. I said to him, you know, Bob, you've got all these songs. Why don't you, uh, why don't you pick one and we'll just cut it live and we'll just, you know, it'll be like a live recording and maybe we'll put a little reverb on it or whatever, but let, let's try to do something live for the last track. And, and, acu- and acoustic, right? You, you wanted like an old school yeah. acu- solo acoustic Dylan yeah. song. Yeah. 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 So I just said, let's do it like you did with the harmonica and the acoustic guitar and just cut it like that. And literally, uh, so he came back in and he did this song Dark Eyes and, and I think that's like the second take and, and it was like, wow. man, that's an unbelievable song. And then I didn't know until when the, when his book came out because he did, a, he, he actually wrote the song that the, I said to him, why don't we do a song that's acoustic and blah, blah, blah. And he wrote, he came in and wrote, wrote he wrote the song that night and then recorded it. <laughs> so literally, and he said that's the only time in his career up until that point that he ever sort of wrote a song at the request of the producer. Like he usually would just use songs he had, but he thought that what I was saying was correct. So he thought, okay, I'll write a new song. I mean, that's pretty cool. I mean, that's the ultimate production. You you brought that song into life uh, from nowhere. That's pretty cool. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. I didn't know, listen, which which literally I didn't know for 20 years because I didn't know until he wrote the book. And I'm reading the book like a fan. And, you know, I mean, he has so many 
things he could talk about in his, in his first book. And I was like totally, you know, floored when he mentioned that as being something really special. So I, I was sort of happy with that. Yeah. yeah. And that's basically the last time in his whole career on an album that he sings solo acoustic on a non-cover on, on his yeah. own song. It's a pretty remarkable yeah. moment. So, I, I would, I would, I, I would guess. And yeah. I think you should do it more often. Yeah. Well, yeah. well thank you for that, Arthur. So you're listening to Rolling Stone music now. We're talking about the 1985 Bob Dylan album, Empire Burlesque, with his producer, Arthur Baker. And we'll be right back with a lot more. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Macy's, Adidas, Walmart, Nike, Wine.com, Samsung, Lenovo, Sephora, and more and even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use, and you get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Arthur, there's a story you tell that Bob was not super patient with the mixing of a, of a modern multi-track album. So, and then at one point he sort of went off and did something. What what happened that night? Yeah, we were we were we were we were at um, Right Track, and um, basically he was telling me how Blonde on Blonde they mixed in like two days. <laughs> I was like, yeah, okay, well, uh, yeah, I was like wow great album two days you know it was four track so i try to sort of explain to him which i knew he understood but you know he always loved to like mess with you and i'm saying you know we're we're on like 48 track and that was four track so you've got to give us like a lot more time because we have to go through the sounds whatever so he said oh he went so he decided to go to the to the movies you know so he came back and he had seen um, the movie with Cher. Um, Mask, right? Uh, what's the name? Mask. Mask. Yeah, he had seen Mask and he was really like, he went, yeah, man. God, Cher was unbelievable. You know, uh, I didn't know they made movies like that anymore. You know, I didn't think they ever made movies like that. He, he was so blown away by that movie. And then he came in and started listening and, you know, whatever. But it was like. I always remember him talking, you know, coming back. So because obviously he knew Cher, and he just couldn't believe how good she was. And you know, I mean, you know, he's definitely uh, he's definitely a fan of pop culture. You know, when he when he uh, when he when he hooks into something, he really sort of is a fan of it. A so, fan of it. So, so whatever. Do you think? An interesting. Do you think that Dylan's goal was to get a big pop hit? Do you think that he wanted a like radio hit? He thought Tight Connection would possibly like really work on pop radio. Do you think that was the goal here? 
I, I you know what? It's hard to say because I mean, then he did these really totally bizarre videos <laughs> with Dave Stewart. You know, yeah, where he danced. <laughs> those videos, those videos were a lot weirder than the record for <laughs> sure. Just bizarre. You know, they were very Miami Vice videos. So, <laughs> I don't. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, it's hard to say. Obviously, he did have huge pop hits earlier in his career when he. You know, he had huge pop hits. So uh, I don't know. To get into his head, it really, you know, it wasn't anything we talked about. Except when he did say, the only thing I could say is that thing, oh, can't we make a record like Madonna or Prince? Now, of course, I assumed he was joking. (laughs) I'd say 95% of the thing was a joke, but maybe in in the back of his mind, he wanted a hit. I don't know. It's it's it, it's really it's really hard to say because you know basically a lot of the songs on the record were very catchy and commercial. Like I said, emotionally, yours was a an amazing song, and and as was I'll remember you. I think those two stand up and they're very soulful. And as I said, the OJ's. I think it was like the OJ's version. I think was a top five record in R and B. It was a big hit. Yeah, let's hear. Uh, and, let, let's hear uh, Bob's probably. version. Sorry, sorry. Let's hear Bob's version of "Emotionally Yours." Come, baby, find me. Come, baby, remind me of where I once began. And now let's hear uh, the OJ's version, which is great too. Come. Arthur, there's a cool thing on on, on uh, Bob's version of "Emotional Yours." I think that's a track where there's uh, like almost a Bob O'Reilly type synth comes in, like a little. Did you remember that? Yeah, bit? yeah, yeah. How did that end yeah, up yeah, in there? Sure, yeah. I put it in there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 you know, I tried things, and and he, you know, I tried a lot of things, and and pretty much he went with them. I, I'm sure there are a few things that he just passed on, but any anything, any anything like that, you know. Um, I had a keyboard player, this guy, Richard Scher, who worked on it, and um, I had a few of my guys playing on it, And but I know Richard was doing that stuff. And, uh, yeah, I mean, if it worked, you know, I didn't, I mean, literally some things worked and some things didn't. Mm. And some things that worked are not on the record and some things that <laughs> didn't work are on the record. So well, we were saying, sort of, you yeah. know. Yeah, it's just how it is. I and mean, we were saying, yeah. I mean, on the previous record, on Infidels, Dylan had just made infidels and left off this song foot of pride which is one of his best songs um this uh this song uh blind willie mctell which some people think is his single best song yeah um and then the original (laughs) and then the original version of tight connection to my heart which was called yeah which is called somebody's which is called somebody's got a hold of my heart Right. Yeah. 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 And, exactly. And so, I love Tight Connection. You know, Tight Connection's a great, a great song, and we, you know, we worked on that a lot on vocals and changing lyrics, obviously. Yeah. So I don't think you you weren't aware at the time. I think that he was taking a ton of lyrics for that song from from what Humphrey Bogart movies. Yes. Yeah. When did you become aware no. of that? <laughs> I never did. Uh, just now. <laughs> oh, like yeah, now, now? yeah. It's did you ever work on that the previous recording of it, the one that's on the bootleg series? Did you ever try to mess with that one? God, you know, I I, I have to say that I I'd have to listen to it, but I yeah, I don't know. Okay, I know we we worked on a few, but um, yeah, I mean, tight. Con- I'm trying to remember if tight connection if if 
if the, we did the drums again, maybe, possibly. I'd have to look at the record, but we did. Sly and Robbie played on a few other tracks, and, I, and it, that might be one of them, but I'm not, I, you know, without looking at the record, I, I'm sorry, I don't have the record. So was he, me, was know, he totally, was he, was he scribbling away at lyrics, like, in the studio as you did vocals? Yeah. How did that work? Yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. Scribbling away, and he would just go in and, and try them, and then if he, he'd listen back, and if he didn't like it, he'd, he'd scribble some more you know on a few of the songs but tight connection and something somebody's burning something's burning baby yeah yeah uh, and on seeing the yeah, real you at last also yeah seeing the real you at last those three were the ones where he really emotionally yours and and i'll remember you were pretty i i, I as, as i remember those were pretty much uh not he didn't mess with rewriting lyrics on those as i remember but i mean those other three for sure he did we worked on those a lot so it, it becomes all the more a mystery because tight connection to my heart somewhere between the version that's on the bootleg series and the version that's on the album he filled it with lines from like humphrey bogart movies and even according to clinton halen there is one line in that song that is from a star trek episode so the mystery becomes more intense because how on earth if he was scribbling them in front of you in the lyrics in in, in the studio how on earth was he pulling these lines from movies and tv shows it's bizarre unless you remember star trek playing in the studio which could actually solve this for us <laughs> there was a TV in the studio. I can't say what was on it, but, uh, you know. like a Bogart film uh, marathon. <laughs> if you, yeah, if you I remember, no yeah, idea, man. But you know, he could have, you know, he could have. I mean, literally, some of the things. I'm not saying everything he he redid. He a lot of it he did scribble for sure. He yeah. sat and wrote things and then he sang them. So you know that doesn't mean that a lot of the other ones he didn't get from movies and TV. I don't know. I mean, you couldn't really tell with him. But literally, he was writing lyrics. Right. Some something's burning. Tight connection for sure. But you know, like it is 32 years ago, guys. Yeah, right, yeah, of course. I totally got it. What was sort of the state of his sobriety or lack thereof? Was he like drinking that you could tell? Was uh, well, how- let me put let me put it this way. One time, I picked up a cup which I thought was my tea, and it was his. <laughs> and there was a lot of there was a lot of rum in that tea. <laughs> so, <laughs> he, he was drinking. He was drinking rum, but and- you know, not like. Not with the bottle, and I, I mean, he, I, I did Mount Mount Gay rum. That's what that, that's what he was drinking. Yeah. How much he later? Mount be, yeah. Mount Gay and, and soul food, but he didn't eat a, He didn't eat a lot. Though. That's the other thing. He didn't really eat a lot. It was sort of hmm. he probably ate before he he didn't want to be seen eating. I would guess, you know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like probably yeah, you know, it's sort of that thing you don't really want to uh, when you when you Bob Dylan, you probably don't want people to see that you. You don't want people to see you eating, maybe. I don't know. Did you ever any like? Did you have any like sort of personal conversations with them, just like man to man, just talking about stuff besides the movie Mask? Yeah, you know, I mean, we 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 did about music, and and later on, after actually after the record, I met up with him once in L.A., and he was he had just been. Um, he had been to Brazil and he was talking about the tuning, guitar tunings and stuff. And he was like really into it. And, you know, it was, it, you know, we, he, he, uh, he loved like Dion and the Belmonts. He used to talk about them a lot, you know, sort of like doo-wop. He was really into doo-wop. Um, hmm. 
you know, that kind of thing. We, you know, we would just, you know, literally not a lot because, you know, we'd get in and we'd work and then he didn't stay out late, you know? I mean, <laughs> I have friends who played in his band, like, and they, you know, obviously they spent a lot of downtime and, and are, are at least one of my friends, um, Greg Sutton, who is a bass player in one of his bands. Mm. And uh, so he has great, he has great stories because he used to hang with him a lot on the road. But you know, when you're making a record, Unless you're going out to dinner afterwards, which he didn't really do dinner, so <laughs> it really wasn't like a thing, you know. I mean, uh, you know, after the fact, you know, when when he had the biograph party, you know, we hung out there and had a couple of drinks, and you know, it was, you know, we we and I met a few years after we were still in touch, and then you know, recently for uh, one one interesting uh, side note is Stu Kimball, who played, who was in this group face to face that yeah. I produced it from Boston. And he, had, you know, he played on, he played on when the night comes falling, he played on a few tracks and then like 15 years later through a totally other, through Peter Wolf, he got like a, to, to try out for Dylan's band and he got the gig and he's been in the band and for 20 years. He's still there. <laughs> Dylan. Yeah. Well, Dylan claimed not to realize he had been on the record, <laughs> you know, Hi, and well, the you, thing was, he wasn't. He wasn't the studio. You know, Bob was there when Stu played a, a few times. So I, who knows? If we, you know, it had been fifteen years. But I'm just saying, it's interesting that yeah. Stu has now been in that band for like. That is years. weird. And sure. you almost worked on Dylan's next record, right? Didn't he approach oh, you yeah, about that? that? <laughs> There's an insane story. Yeah, tell tell this insane story. And that and, and, and the story is a hundred percent true. Basically, I was I had my studio in, on Thirty Seventh Street in Manhattan, and I was driving back from like the New Music Seminar, which uh, you know used to be sort of this convention that that um, a few guys put on music convention, which was a really great music convention. Um, a lot of people, a lot of New York artists were discovered through it and stuff. But I was coming back and there was a sign, you know, you couldn't take a right onto 37th from 7th Avenue unless you had commercial plates. Well, I didn't have commercial plates, but I had a studio there and I had a bunch of boxes of records and stuff that I had to bring in. So I took the right, this uh, meter maid, you know, stopped me and got in front of the car and wanted me to back back out into 7th Avenue, which I, which I wasn't gonna do. So basically I just said, well, listen, I'll pull over, you call the cops, whatever. So I'm waiting there on the hood of my car, and I and I had, actually I had some substances that I shouldn't have, the police <laughs> were gonna show up. So I gave them to Stu, actually. Stu was with me, and uh, so he took, he took the substances and went to the studio, um, to my studio, which was three doors down, and the cops get there and they like literally throw me against the wall and slap handcuffs on me. The, the, the meter maid had said that I had tried to run her over in the car. So, so, so luckily, this guy in the crowd seeing it go all go down, he gave me a business card and his father was a federal judge in Brooklyn, like, like a high powered, like uh, local uh, uh, state Supreme Court or something. He said, listen, I saw it. I'm going to talk to my dad about it because literally this is, you know, total bullshit. So I ended up in jail for like overnight and um, I get out and literally, you know, I get a lawyer and I say to my, uh, the, 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 the woman has now claimed that I hit her with my car. So basically that's like, that's a felony, you know, like, you know, I mean, you, you could go to jail for that. Like, uh, so basically 
she's taken work off. She's gone on like, you know, disability. So I tell my lawyer, I said, I said, follow that young lady. Let's find out what she's doing. And we actually got a PI, uh, a PI and we found out that she was like smoking crack and stuff. <laughs> so literally we got pictures and all that. We went to court. But, but Bob, course, but, but, but you missed a meeting with Bob, right? Because of this. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. The yeah. best part of the story is, so basically Stu, my guitarist, goes to the gig with probably with those substances that I gave him. And literally he goes back to see Bob to tell Bob that I've been arrested. And Bob goes, couldn't he come up with a better story than that if he didn't want to work on my record? <laughs> so literally I didn't get the gig. And when I sued the city, I said, I lost this gig. So basically, the gig, I, I ended up getting like uh, compensated for the gig and any and royalties and stuff. So <laughs> literally, I got I got I, I got paid for doing it without doing it. So the city of of, of New, York? New York, yeah, yeah. they paid you yeah, for a Bob Dylan album that you didn't get because of them. <laughs> <laughs> Great moments in music yeah. business history. And it's a real shame yeah. because his next album really sucked. And <laughs> if he had you on yeah. it, I think knocked out loaded. Well, Oh, here's the thing. I wasn't really, I mean, he had sent me some things and I really, I can't even say that I would have done it, you know, but I was going to go talk to him. You know what I mean? He had sent me some songs mm. and I wasn't really into the song. So <laughs> literally it probably saved me from saying no and I still got paid. So that's, that's not a bad thing. Tell the Mark, time. the Mark Knopfler story. Cause he had worked on some of the tracks over the various sessions. Oh, yeah. and so then, the yeah. Mark Knopfler story is, Fantastic. Mark Mark comes into the studio and first of all insults my oh hold on one second. Um in, insults my soon to be ex wife who is still my friend, who was a big <laughs> a big fan of uh of Dire Straits. So basically she comes in and she says to Mark Knopfler, Oh, you know, I love uh making movies, it's my favorite record. He said, Oh wow. I feel bad for you, but that's your favorite record. <laughs> like that. So literally, he's not, he wasn't on the top of my list anyway. But then he listens to one of the songs, and, and I'm sorry, I don't remember which one. Yeah, yeah. But he goes, oh, you know what? That song needs a guitar. That I, have a, I have a part in my mind, but I need, I need chords. I need some pads in there. So he got he got his keyboard player from Dire Straits who you know was was there, and basically so he was he was trying to tune the synthesizer to the track because the track was you know these are tracks that had been worked on in five studios and you know basically it wasn't it wasn't like no one had a, a pitch a tuning pitch you know it wasn't that wasn't happening so he's tuning it up literally two hours seriously then he plays a part that you know a two finger just sustain two notes like through the song which you know we love me and bob look at each other and we're, we're wasting time you know bob doesn't like the studio that much so we're wasting this time and then Knopfler comes in and listens to it a couple of times through and he goes uh, you know what it doesn't really need a guitar part and then walks out <laughs> and literally bob's like bob no and bob's like literally that's what working with him was like that Ouch. was why i would you know I wouldn't work for them again, you know? I forget the exact words, but it was that 
direction. So basically, we spent like four hours on literally nothing, <laughs> except I got a good story out of it. So that's probably cool. I wanted to return to the sound of the record because that's obviously that's something you, you in there's parts that you you know you've said many times that you might not do. And I mean the the general. I mean you know there are quote-unquote 80s things there's there's the synth parts some, yeah. some of which are very cool some of which maybe don't sound <laughs> are now yeah, dated absolutely. there's <laughs> there, there, there's there's like the 80s like the 80s itself there, there's snare sounds that even when it's not the electric drums there's like the, that big sort of stadium big uh, re- yeah, yeah big reverb sounds so yeah. so how much For of that ballads, i mean if that no, that was that was me. I, I'll have to take blame for that because literally, no, but I'm honest. You know, literally at that time, big ballads, you know, had that kind of big snare sound, and you know, we were to go back to something you said earlier. We were, you know, trying to make a record that would get played on radio, and we were trying to have a have a bigger produced sound, and it, it was the '80s, so that's the sound that we were going for. So it was sort of. You know, which is which is what made me really happy about Dark Eyes because literally I would have just been as happy to do that, but they didn't hire me to do that. They hired me to right. make it sound, you know, like pop for the eighties. Literally, you know, the Phil Collins sound, all that that sound was 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 you know the big snares and all that. That's what was happening on radio. Then, if you go back, Foreigner, that kind of thing. You know, it was like that kind of stadium sound, but you know. I mean, um, yeah, some of them weren't like that. It, it, I would say the ballads were the things that sort of we did that with, and maybe and when the night comes falling. And, you yeah. Know, I mean, you wanted to have some sort of continuity to the record, and, and, which is difficult when it's recorded all over the world for many years. But, you know, literally, you know, the 80s were like that. And, <laughs> and, and, and similarly, I, 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 I had done a Hall & Oates record in the same sort of... Uh, capacity, which was sort of trying to make it sound 80s, and I did Big Bamboom, and the, you know, I try to convince Daryl and John for the last song to just sit at the piano and do a song, just the two of them mm. at the piano, and they and, and and they didn't do it. Literally, they didn't do it, and Bob did, and look, we got Dark Eyes, and we probably could have a great Hall and Oates song that people would still be talking about if they had done it, because literally, that's you get the magic out of that and it doesn't get overly produced and you just go, let's, let's do it like old school, you know, which is still, I still love that kind of thing. I, I, I recently did an album with Paul Young, which was all stack songs. And we did, we did one cover that wasn't a stack. So we did, um, we did words by, um, you know, the Bee Gees and we did mm. it like pretty much one take. And, and those, those things really sound great. And obviously Bob is doing that kind of thing now with, with covers, I guess. So, you know, yeah. But, um, yeah. I mean, uh, he, did, you know, he didn't I mean, really care. He didn't really, because he's be- since become very, very particular about sounds in a way that he didn't used to be. You know, he's producing his own records and trying to create this old timey. But it sounds like he he was totally cool, pretty much, with letting you do your thing. He didn't really care that much. Is that accurate? Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. and that's yeah. very rare for Bob because because for most of his career, yeah. he did not want producers to take a strong hand yeah. on his songs. Yeah, I mean, you know, we got we did get on. I think he he liked me. I think we got on pretty well. So, uh, but you know, then again, he didn't really want to like spend the time anyway. You know, <laughs> I mean, he would be in. No, no, but it's true. He doesn't. You know, it's like uh, he didn't. You know, he he really 
wasn't a studio head. He didn't really want to do it. And it wasn't like, it wasn't like going in with a band, which he does now, I, I guess. And that's more, you know, you're in with your band. His band's playing with him like 200 nights a year. So, you know, you can pretty much, it's, it's more like a rehearsal. And I think he are more like playing live. It's more like the old school for him. Like when he did all, you know, Blonde on Blonde. And they would go in for like three days and cut like 15 tracks, you know? And, 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 and that's what he likes. So, you know, working with a producer and listening over and over and over to something, I doubt he even does that now. I would, I would think he, he's going for straight takes. I would get, I mean, I could find out and ask Stu because I think Stu's playing on some of those records. So, yeah, I think you're right. I, you I think even, even, even if the vocal cracks, he still uses the take. But, um, yeah, I, you know, yeah, I think he's going for full takes like the old days, literally. We have just that. Instead of having to bother with writing new songs, he does covers, which, you know, I guess he doesn't need any more songs. I'm sure his publishing takes care of him very well, you know, so, <laughs> so he, doesn't, he doesn't really have to write it. He never has to write another song. And that's, that, you know, that's why I'm really happy with the, the Dark Eyes thing. And, and look, that's 32 years ago. Man. Yeah. That's like insane. You know, in the last couple of minutes, you so when you got onto this record, you had just done all these really cool remixes uh, from Born in the USA from the Springsteen album. I'm I'm a big fan of a more obscure one, Cover Me, um, which actually sounds yeah, like yeah, I love Cover Me. That's like totally un, that's totally obscure, and that's a, that's actually a that's actually a cool story because literally Cover Me was written for Donna Summer. I don't right. even know that that was that was written for Donna Summer. So like when I got the tape. Um, Basically, there's this there's this female you know black female voice on it, and I'm like, damn, because it, it didn't say the name. And then I realized it was Jocelyn Brown, who was a friend of mine. And I called her up. I said, Jocelyn, did you do a track with Bruce Springsteen? She said, Yeah, four years ago, whatever. So literally, I I sort of brought that out in the track and huh. made it much more sort of reggae. And the reason they wanted me to remix that track was it was going to be a single and he didn't like playing it live because he never was happy with the groove of it huh. and the vibe of it because he didn't write it for himself. He wrote it for Donna Summer. So it was pretty stiff. So he, they wanted me to sort of funk it up or groove it up. So I did the, you know, I used this, uh, this bass player named Brian Rock who was in this group Mojo Naya, which was someone who was signed to Streetwise, my label at the time. Huh. And, you know, we did sort of a reggae thing on it and then the delays and stuff. So then when they on his vocals. So then in, when they played it live, like I went to Giant Stadium and it was the first time they played it live and they used sort of like the delays and the intro that, that I did as the uh, as the intro on when he played it live. So that was sort of cool. Yeah, no, I love that. And in general, what did you learn? You also did um, a Dance in the Dark remix when, when he plays that live. People, There's still people in the audience who sing the woes that I think you, you overdubbed yeah. <laughs> <laughs> into that song. Oh, I did. Every, yeah, there's all the background vocals on that. I mean, if you know the original, then you listen to the version I did, you know, the bells. And then, yeah, sort of a Phil Spector thing, which, you know, when we did the Phil Spector thing, it was like, obviously he was a big fan of Phil Spector. So he was like really into it. And he, he came to the studio and that was power station also. And he, and the, uh, and the AC went down. It was like in the middle of the summer. And, uh, and basically he went out and got us a case of beer and hung out with us. And, uh, and basically, you know, after that, he, he didn't, he didn't, he was like, Oh yeah, I'm, I'm totally fine with what Arthur's doing. So I did, cover me and then and then born in the usa so and born in the usa i used his his engineer toby toby scott to uh 
to engineer the mix, which you know he was sort of happy with also. But uh, and you did some yeah, radical. You did yeah, some was, radical stuff on Born in USA. There, were, there was like a freedom mix that's really wild. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just went for it, man, because. By that time, it was like, you know, the album had sold like 15 million copies. I wasn't going to mess anything up. I just went for it. And, and you know, the, the yeah, I, I, I love all three of those mixes I, I, I'm really happy with. I'm not, you know, sometimes I, you know, look back and I go, oh, you know, I, I just went for it. And, and it definitely, it definitely had the energy and he, and he was, he, he liked them all so that, you know, when the artist and his Springsteen are, are okay with what you've done with their music, it's sort of cool, you know? So we have like one minute. I, and then I, out of yeah. that, I got, you know, then I got to work with, then, you know, I, through that and through Dylan, I got to meet Steve Van Zandt, who actually, Jimmy Iovine, strangely introduced us. And then we did the, then we did the Sun City record after that, which both Dylan and Springsteen are on. So yeah. That, that and, am, sort of a, and amazing. I, and, I and, and Africa Bombada, your, your man was also on that, right? And, yeah, Miles Davis. Yeah, and, you know, Bono, and <laughs> now that's a you should do. Listen, go back and listen to Sun City album because it's it's an album. Yeah, we you should do one of these on that because literally it's a date. Is, we we will. That's a great idea. Actually, yeah, that's awesome. We could do a whole hour on this song probably. <laughs> um, so yeah, well, the song. But then we did all these like you know Bono. Right. Bono did still. He wrote Silver and Gold for for the project and. He went in with Keith Richards and Ronnie Wood uh, to all uh, to write track, and and Keith was playing like slide guitar with his switchblade. I mean, and then and then and then Robert Palmer, the critic, played clarinet on that. <laughs> you know, the New York Times music critic. So that's a great. That would be great, and I'm sure Van Zant would love to talk about that too. You know, because literally that record. You know, we have this Miles Davis track that. We, we made out of Miles' trumpet part, and then then uh, Herbie Hancock and Tony Williams and, and Ron Carter and Wayne Shorter went back into the studio and did a track under his uh, his trumpet track, which it's an amazing, amazing track, actually. Awesome. It's sort of like this mystery uh, Miles Davis track that no one really knows. Well, it's a date. We will do that. Uh, and we've been talking to Arthur Baker, about uh, the 1985 album Empire of Burlesque and much more and this has been Rolling Stone Music Now thanks so much for being here Arthur and we will be back next Friday at 1pm on volume and in the meantime download us as a podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and have a great week we'll see you next week Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was the three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.